This is Zev's last week, and I just want to thank him publicly for the time and effort uh, that he's putting into teaching. His trips here are always ones that I cherish, and I'm sure you will all express the same to him. Um, next, amen. Next week, um, Dr. Lloyd from Kent will be here. Dr. Lloyd will start four weeks on the epistles, and following that, uh, Dr. Uh, Carl Pace from Malone will be here. He's a new instructor. We haven't had Carl here, Pace, and uh, he's going to be talking on uh, writings in the Old Testament. Uh, to all of you, happy Thanksgiving, and attention to Zev. Thanks, Zev. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Asher Kiddushanu B'mitzvotav V'tzivanu La'asok B'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, eternal our God, ruler of the universe, who has sanctified us with your commandments and commanded us to immerse ourselves in words of Torah, of words of divine instruction. Uh, yeah, actually, I don't know whether I should be standing on one foot or whether I should have asked for lessons from a tobacco auctioneer and then maybe had them for the podcast sort of slow it down, I don't know. But we do have a hideous amount of material to get through. And so I'm going to have to ask you to, if you can, hold your questions in abeyance. Because otherwise we will never get through this. We really have two huge subjects to get through. We pretty much talked about the theology and the understanding of history of the books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings last week. So now we have to do a quick 25-cent tour of the contents of these four, or in our Bibles, six books, which is obviously an extraordinary amount of material to get through in one session. And we really are dealing with two main subjects that are interwoven, the rise and fall of Israel's monarchies and the rise of the prophetic movement. Okay, so let's start with the rise of the, of, of the monarchy. In the pre-monarchical period from about 1200 to 1050 BCE, the period of the judges, what was the structure of the Israelite commonwealth? What was their life like? One thing you need to remember and to keep in mind is that in the ancient Near East, there were certain emblems of kingship that were common throughout almost all the kingdoms of the ancient Near East. They were not a crown, but they were essentially threefold. You had the throne. The throne was the primary mark of kingship. The second was the scepter. I remember as a student when I was in Israel going to the Israel Museum, and I kind of got lost for a while in some of the archaeological things. And I remember going through literally multiple rooms filled with cases of these bronze chalcolithic scepters. It's room after room of nothing but scepters. The scepter was the key emblem. And the third was something that uh, every monarch had, were tables of destiny, which were sort of like oracular dice that were used for deciding such key factors as when do we go to war, 
And um, now what's interesting is in the early Israelite commonwealth of the period of the judges, who owned these three emblems? It was God who owned these three emblems. The mercy seat as God's throne. The rod of Aaron kept next to it as his scepter. And the Urim and Tumim, which were guarded by the high priest, but didn't belong to the high priest, in his breastplate. Okay, these were, and so therefore, what this basically said is that Israelite, Israel, was functionally the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God was not some abstract or spiritual notion. It was the political regime of the Israelite commonwealth. Only Hashem could be the legitimate king of Israel. So when we start talking about Israelite monarchy, this already presents a problem. Okay, There were under this, in the pre-monarchical period, the period of the judges, two types of leaders that were important. One was the tribal elders. Essentially what you had is a confederacy of tribes under their tribal and family and clan elders that would come together at the sanctuary in Shiloh for covenant renewal, things like that, but basically it was government by elders. And in fact, they used there, there's an absolutely horrific biblical term that scholars use, amphictyony. Don't even worry about how it's spelled or remembering it. Okay, but essentially it means governance by elders or groups of elders. The other were the judges. Now the judges really, in Hebrew shoftim, shoftim, really had two functions. They were charismatic war leaders. Remember I talked about the basic cycles of Israelite history during this period as outlined in the book of Judges. Very early on were a brief period of prosperity, followed by apostasy, followed by oppression, followed by outcry, followed by deliverance. Deliverance from the foreign oppression largely because God would essentially call up someone who would serve as a shofate, a judge, who basically did two things. Charismatic war leader, but also a settler of disputes and other issues. In other words, if there were arguments between the tribes, or if there were arguments among clans or individuals, they would bring it to the shofate, who was a charismatic, God-inspired person, and uh, get their disputes settled in this way. One of the most interesting cases in, the, in this regard, of course, is Deborah, who was considered a prophetess and a judge. And she would sit beneath a tamarind tree, and people from the different tribes of Israel would come with their problems, their disputes, their hang-ups, whatever it was, to get a word from the Lord from her. So um, 
this was a very, very crucial type of leadership. So that was really the position of Israel, and there was a sense in which it worked sort of. I mean, it was obviously, in an ideal universe, it would be perfect, but, you know, we don't live in an ideal universe, and things always went wrong. Now, in the transition to monarchy, the really key figure is Samuel. The really key figure is Samuel. Okay? Can't emphasize this enough. Samuel not only got his name on a couple of books, or a book as it was originally, but he is the really key figure in the transition period from the pre-monarchical to the monarchical period. He is also a transitional figure in another way. In a very real sense, Samuel is the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. He is the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. And now, how do we get to the idea of monarchy, especially? Well, around, uh, you, you can see this, I think, on your, um, I think it probably talks about, yes, around 1200. You'll note on your timeline that there's an odd little thing. The Sea Peoples invade Egypt and Syro-Palestine. Now, who were the Sea Peoples? The Sea Peoples were, historians and archaeologists believe, the refugees and remnants of Minoan civilization, the civilization of Greek, Greece, the Greek island of Crete and also possibly some Mycenaeans. They were called the Sea Peoples because they were very good seafarers. And they invaded the Mediterranean coast because things went to hell in a handbasket in the home. You know, it's sort of, they had to relocate. And they invaded Egypt and they also invaded and settled on the Mediterranean coast west of the Israelite tribes, and they set up, there were about five cities that came together to form a confederation, and they became known as the Philistines. The Philistines. So this was a new foreign threat that had not been there before, and one thing the Philistines had that gave them an unbelievable advantage and it can be specified in one word. Iron. Iron. This was an Iron Age culture that was invading a Bronze Age cultural area. Now naturally, of course, in war, that gives you a huge advantage. If you have our swords and armor that are made out of iron, and your opponent only has swords and armor that are made out of bronze, who's going to win? The iron's going to win. So this was something new, and the people had a deep sense 
look, things just can't keep going on the same way. All of this stuff about, you know, Hashem is the king of Israel and we have judges when we need them and we've got Samuel and all that's wonderful, but we need something a little bit more. Now, when you look at the books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, it's important to keep in mind that the attitude towards monarchy is not monolithic. You have pro and anti-monarchical settlements, sentiments. The pro-monarchical sentiment especially finds it in all of the great stories we think about David, okay? David becomes the great cultural hero of the pro-monarchical ideas. But there is also a strong anti-monarchical sentiment that runs throughout of those who really feel, hey, look, there's only one legitimate king of an Israelite commonwealth, and that's who? God, the God of Israel. And so we really do have an issue here. So I want us to take a quick look at 1 Samuel 8, 1 through 9. And I think what I'm going to do is, I'm, I think I'm just going to read these because in the interest of time, 1 Samuel 8, 1 through 9. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons judges over Israel. See, he's the last of the judges. He's appointing judges as successor. The name of his firstborn son was Yoel, and his second son's name was Abiah. And they sat as judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not follow in his ways. They were bent on gain and they accepted bribes, and they subverted justice. All the elders of Israel assembled, there are your elders, your group of elders coming together, and came to Samuel at Ramah. He was in a different place than his sons were. And they said to him, you have grown old, and your sons have not followed your ways. Therefore appoint a king over us to govern us like all the other nations. Israel was the only commonwealth in that area that did not have a human monarch. Samuel was displeased that they said, give us a king to govern us. Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord replied to Samuel, and oh, I love this response. Heed the demand of the people in everything they say to you. For it is not you that they have rejected. It is me they have rejected as their king. Like everything else they have done, ever since I brought them out of the land of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and worshiping other gods, so they are doing to you. Heed their demand but warn them solemnly and tell them about the practices of any king who will rule over them, which Samuel proceeds to do. You want a king? Well, I got news for you. It ain't going to be no picnic. Okay. You might find yourself with a big case of buyer's remorse. In any event, what I really want to point out here is not only the idea that you have of Hashem as the sole legitimate king of Israel, but in effect, 
by requesting a king, they are in effect turning from Hashem, and that makes it an act of idolatry. In other words, this is not just a political crisis. This is a spiritual crisis. To ask for a king instead of God is, in effect, to commit idolatry. Now, uh, Saul becomes the first experiment with kingship under Samuel. Now, what's important, I remember something. My sister uh, had a, uh, went to Brandeis University and one of the, the majors that she had was Near Eastern and Judaic Studies. And I remember we were talking about it. And she said, there's a real way in which Samuel can be seen as a singularly tragic figure. Because he's the only one of the prophets who ever had to undo his own work. He had to undo his own work. And what's important to understand is that although Samuel, who was also called the seer, that's another indication that we're still at the beginning of this concept of prophecy, uh, didn't know beforehand who it was, God was going to tell him, and he kind of fell in love with Saul. He kind of fell in love with Saul. After all, Saul was this big, strapping, Benjamite man head and shoulders literally above everybody else. In other words, his physical stature was one of the things that marked him as a good potential war leader. And, of course, you wanted a king to lead you in war. So Samuel really did love Saul, and at God's command, he anointed him. Now, what kind of a king Saul basically from about 1030 BCE to 1010 BCE? So Saul reigned for about 20 years. Now what kind of a king was Saul? He didn't really have a standing army. What he was, in effect, was a glorified judge. He was the person who was now anointed by God as king, but essentially when Khan came for war, he had to summon the tribes just like judges did and say, y'all show up, we got a problem here. Okay, and, and, this, and he had some initial success against the Philistines. But things went terribly wrong. There are two versions in 1 Samuel as to where Saul failed. One is he had gathered the tribes of Israel to fight against the Philistines, and he was supposed going to wanted to offer sacrifice, but Samuel had told him, "Wait till I get there. Wait till I get there." However, they were sitting there in camp. People were beginning to get demoralized as they looked at the Philistine army. People were beginning to desert, and Saul was afraid that the it was just not going to work. So, even though Samuel was not there, he went ahead and offered sacrifice. And when Samuel showed up, he was not pleased. But the big one in the narrative is when an old command, which is one of those things in the Hebrew scriptures that we tend not to want to really pay a lot of attention to because it's really kind of an unpleasant command. 
when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt, a group of people called the Amalekites attacked them and basically attacked the stragglers, the women, the children, the elderly who were straggling behind the rest of the, elder, uh, the Israelites in the desert. This was considered especially heinous and cowardly, so God declared eternal warfare against Amalek and said, when you all get settled in the land and are well settled and protected, I want you to wipe out even the memory of Amalek. What was being commanded, therefore, was nothing short of what we would call total genocide. The absolute extermination of a people and all of their property. And so, through Samuel, uh, God essentially gave the message to Saul, okay, Things are settled enough, it's time to take care of Amalek. That's an old score that needs to be settled. And so Samuel said, I do, I will. He gathered the tribes of Israel, they made war against Amalek, and he did something that he was not supposed to do. He spared women and children, and he spared their livestock to offer them in sacrifice. What he should have done was kill everybody and kill all the livestock. I guess he was figuring, this doesn't make any sense. I mean, if you wipe out all the livestock, I mean, here's perfectly good animals to offer sacrifice to God. That should be nice. God should like that. No, God was not pleased. And above all, he spared Agag the king of the Amalekites. And uh, I guess it was sort of he wanted to have this feather in his cap of having this Amalekite king as his dependent at his table. And so essentially what God told Samuel to do is he said, I've repented. It's interesting, and God repents in Hebrew scripture. I've repented that I made Saul king. Essentially, go and unanoint him. And so Samuel, Samuel did. And uh, he told Saul that the kingdom would be taken away from him, given to his better. And then Agag was brought to Samuel, and he hewed him in pieces while he was still alive. Ouch, yes. Okay. This is a little difficult for us to kind of stomach in the 21st century. But, you know, this was an age of direct action. And there are some facts that we have to take account of in Hebrew scripture that may not be what we would like to hear. Now, the person who David was essentially, and here's a really, one of the most beautiful passages in scripture is when Samuel is sent to anoint one of Jesse's sons. Now what's important to keep in mind, Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. That's a northern tribe. There was already a kind of a north-south split. Judah was the tribe in the south and had absorbed the tribe of Shimon, of Simeon. 
And so this was already a transition from the northern tribes to a southern tribe. That's critically important. You're, you know, it's sort of like crossing the Mason-Dixon line. It's as if God said, listen, I'm tired of this Yankee that you made king. I want you to go and anoint a good confederate. Uh, not likely to be very popular with the rest of the Yankees. Okay. So he goes there, and there is, of course, the story of he looks on Jesse's firstborn, and like, you know, he was with Saul. He was impressed with Saul's stature. He was impressed with this guy. And the God said, nope, I don't look at the exterior. I look at the heart. And then finally, they had to summon David from keeping the sheep. And he came in, and God says, this is the one. Anoint him. And uh, so he anointed David. Now keep in mind, Saul was still reigning. So this was a subversive act. That's why he sort of had to disguise what he was doing as going to offer sacrifice so that Saul didn't kill him. Now, David becomes the great cultural hero of the Deuteronomistic history of the Nevi'im Rishonim, is held up in many ways as the ideal king, becomes one of the great heroes, really, of Israelite and Jewish history. And there is no doubt about it that this is important to keep in mind the kind of person he was, the kind of king he was, but it is really David who establishes the kingdom of Israel. He is the one who establishes the king of Israel and becomes, in effect, the pattern and prototype of all subsequent Israelite kings. There were certain forces that David had to contend with. And here I'm really indebted to some uh, reflections that I've had uh, in, the, um, in, look, in doing my work that I did in family systems. There were always, in any society, there are forces at work which can best be called the togetherness forces, the things that bring us together, and the separateness forces, the things that keep us apart or drive us apart. Every society has these. And the trick of leadership in any society is to balance them. It works whether the society you're talking about leading is a family, a corporation, a hospital, a church or synagogue or mosque, or a state or a country. It is absolutely crucial to recognize there are things that are in common, there are things that are different. Togetherness and separate forces have to be kept in balance. And this was really symbolized by the fact that when David first was crowned, he was crowned king in Hebron, the central city of Judah in the south. And so how does he win over the northern tribes? Because there was an heir of Saul still alive. And so David comes up with an absolute ingenious stroke of, uh, of leadership. Um, not to mention the fact 
that he had to balance the pro and anti-monarchical understandings of the religion of Israel. How does he establish in Israel, which is the kingdom of God on earth, a legitimate human kingship? Well, he does two things. First of all, he identifies in the middle of the territory of the tribe of Benjamin, a northern tribe and Saul's tribe, an unconquered Jebusite city called Jerusalem. And he conquers it and takes it as his capital. Now this is a stroke of political genius. Why? Because it's in the middle of a northern tribe, so the northern tribes can say, oh, he's going to rule from our midst. But it didn't belong to any one tribe because it had been unconquered. And therefore, no tribe can say, we're home to the capital city. You know what it is like? Can you think of an analogy today in terms of the American capital? The District of Columbia is not a state. It doesn't belong to any state. Yes, it's north of the Potomac, but it's right on the boundary of the Mason-Dixon line. That's pretty important. That's pretty important. So he does that. Then he does something absolutely extraordinary. He decides to bring the Ark of the Covenant up to his new capital city of Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant had been sort of in exile after the Philistines captured it and then sent it back. What is the Ark of the Covenant in terms of ancient emblems of kingship? What is, it, what is its nature? What is its function? It's the throne of Hashem. The throne of God. So what's David going to do? He's got this new capital. He will bring God's throne to his new capital. Okay? And so he establishes this new city of Jerusalem as both the temporal and spiritual center of this. Now, notice that he is perfectly balancing here tribal tensions, possible tribal rivalries. He's balancing the togetherness and separate forces. One thing David absolutely never did, another part of his political genius, is he never interfered with the tribal system itself. He essentially left the tribes in place with their own internal governance by elders. He doesn't really dictate from the center. Okay, but as he associates, and then finally there is one really ingenious thing. You know, of course, you know, our understanding when you look at scripture, it sounds like this is God's idea. But really, from a strictly political point of view, it is the greatest, most ingenious thing of all. And that is God's covenant with David. The Davidic covenant. Now, why is this important? It reconciles the pro- and anti-monarchical tensions in Israelite society because it establishes, yes, 
Hashem is the sole legitimate king of Israel, and David is his vassal under king. David is his vassal under king. That works. Okay. So both those who felt that Hashem was the only legitimate king and those who wanted a king who would go out and lead them in battle with the Philistines especially, everybody got what they wanted. Everybody got what they wanted. In other words, David was a superb political leader. This cannot be gainsaid. It's, it's really crucial to understand that in this case, religion and politics are not two separate realms here. Um, in the ancient Near East and in the modern Middle East, to separate religion and politics is impossible. It's all of a piece. It's all of a piece. Now, whew, where did things start going wrong for David? And of course, everybody here will immediately say Bathsheba. Now, yes, he did have a little trouble governing his appetites. Okay. But one of the important things, if you look at the beginning of the passage of David and Bathsheba, there is a very important passage that you might zip right past. In the spring of the year, when it is time for kings to go out for battle, what did David do? He remained in Jerusalem. He said, I've had enough of fighting. Let somebody else do the dirty work. Uh-uh. That's your job, buddy. And this is where he starts to go wrong. But if I had to say what I think is the real weakness of David, and it's one of the most interesting features that runs. In fact, there was a book published years ago called The Book of J. That basically started with the J stratum of the Torah, and followed it right up through the story of David, and it had a consistent theme, which suggested to the author of the book of Jay that this might have been written by a woman. What? You find it all through the Torah. You find it all through the Nevi'im uh, Rishonim. It is the ineffective patriarch in a patriarchal system. The ineffective patriarch in a patriarchal system. In other words, David couldn't control his own family. David couldn't control his own family. You know, he had, a, uh, he had sons by several different wives. His firstborn son raped the daughter of one of his other wives. And, I mean, that was pretty bad. And then when her brother, her full brother, took revenge, we really got into some problems, and so on, and so on, and so on. Now, it's interesting, the Bible pretty much makes a cutoff point that after he had his little affair with Bathsheba, that's when all the trouble began. But again, 
This is all of a piece. This is all of a piece. The irony of David is that he did a superb job managing the kingdom, but couldn't manage his own family. He did a superb job, and you know, and how often do we see that today, where basically people do a superb job of managing a corporation or a political entity or something like this, and you look at their family life and it looks like something out of a soap opera. And this was David's key failing. One of the other themes that is constantly appearing throughout this whole stratum of Israelite religion and Hebrew scripture is the replacement of the elder by the younger. David himself was the youngest son of Jesse. So who does he pick finally as his successor? His youngest son, Solomon. When will they ever learn? When will they ever learn? Okay. All right. But the key thing to keep in mind is that David really established the monarchy. And he did so by a series of compromises. He did so by balancing the tribal and centralizing uh, tendencies of, of uh, tribalism and monarchy. He did so managing, therefore, the togetherness and separate forces. He did so managing the position of a human monarch under the sovereignty of God. Everything was balanced. But one thing that is absolutely crucial to understand what went wrong after David is that the one thing David did not touch Talk about the third rail of Israelite politics. Don't mess with the tribes. Don't mess with the tribes. So at any rate, Solomon becomes his successor. And in some ways, Solomon's reign can be characterized by the phrase, the glory of excess. The glory of excess. First of all, you have to keep in mind, after David established this kingdom and established its borders, Solomon inherited it without warfare, and the geopolitical situation of the kingdom of Israel was unique in the ancient Near East at the time. For one thing, Egyptian power was very much on the wane. Egypt had, under you know, previous pharaohs, exerted enormous influence over the area we call now Palestine, Israel, the land of Israel, over the Canaanites, and so on and so forth. People like Amenhotep III, you know, great, great pharaohs of Egypt, who basically, you know, when another foreign king wanted to marry his sister, he said, no, no foreigner marries the sister or daughter of a pharaoh. That is not done. Because no one is our equal. So, but Egyptian power was very much on the wane. By the same token, the Mesopotamian empires were things of the future. 
no great power had arisen. So there was this power vacuum right there at this bridge land. Now, the land of Israel also controlled several key trade routes. Okay, It controlled the trade route along the coast of the Mediterranean. Okay, between Anatolia, Mesopotamia, and Egypt. It also controlled the east-west trade routes across to Mesopotamia. It controlled the trade route from the south, especially after Solomon seized a lot. And that meant it controlled the single most lucrative trade in the entire ancient world, the incense trade from southern Arabia. In other words, it was in a position to control trade routes. So here it was, this centralized monarchy sitting on top of the richest trade routes in the ancient Near East in the midst of a power vacuum. So what you have to realize is that when you look at the reign of Solomon, it has to be understood. He was probably the single most powerful monarch in the, in the Near East. And the symbol of that is that he did get to marry the daughter of a pharaoh. He got to marry the daughter of a pharaoh. That's a significance of just how powerful he was. So, the stage is set. It was the most powerful kingdom of his time. And Solomon established quite a reputation for wealth and power, among other things. And he did get very rich. And he did have a lot of power. And above all, he had an international reputation for wisdom and sagacity. Okay, and wisdom was, you know, one of the common cultural themes that you find throughout the ancient Near East. You can look at almost all the cultures. There is Mesopotamian wisdom literature. There is Egyptian li wisdom literature. There is wisdom literature all over. Well, Solomon was reputed to be the wisest figure of his age. Now, that's pretty good draw. And who did it draw up from the south? It drew the Queen of Sheba. Okay, there's a lot of debate as to where Sheba was located. Some say it was Ethiopia. That's what the Ethiopians claim. Some say it was actually in southern Arabia in what is called the Hadramaut. That's what the Yemenites like to claim. So, I mean, but, you know, she had heard of his wisdom and his splendor. And so she came to see him, and it was breathtaking, literally. She, you know, lost her breath when she saw it and was very impressed. And evidently, they had a very friendly and cordial visit. Though he did not marry her. So what went wrong? First of all, I like to say, nothing exceeds like excess. If nothing succeeds like success, nothing exceeds like excess. Take a look now at Deuteronomy 17, 16 through 20.
Deuteronomy 17, 16 through 20. Okay. Again, in the interest of time. If after you have entered the land that the Lord your God has assigned to you and taken possession of it and settled in it, you decide, I will set a king over me and do as do all the nations about me. Is this beginning to sound a little familiar? Okay. And do keep in mind we're talking about Deuteronomic history here. You shall be free to set a king over yourself, one chosen by the Lord your God. Who anointed Saul? Samuel the prophet. Who anointed David? David the prophet. Okay. And now Samuel was dead, uh, uh, but there was a high priest who was functioning who anointed uh, Solomon. Be sure to set as king over yourself one of your own people. You must not set a foreigner over you, one who is not your kinsman. Moreover, here comes the punchline. He shall not keep many horses. Why not? Where was the biggest horse breeding land in the ancient Near East? It was Egypt. Because Egypt had perfected chariot warfare. He shall not keep many horses or send people back to Egypt to add to his horses since the Lord has warned you, you must not go back that way again. The Exodus is a strictly one-way trip. And he shall not have many wives, lest his heart go astray. Why? You have many wives. You get a lot of intrigue. Nor shall he amass silver and gold to excess. When he is seated on his royal throne, he shall have a copy of this Torah written for him on a scroll by the Levitical priests. Let it remain with him and let him read it all the days of his life so he may learn to revere the Lord his God and observe faithfully every word of this Torah as well as these laws. Okay. In other words, you're God's vassal. You are not in the place of God. Well, how many of those prohibitions did Solomon break? Pretty much all of them. He, first of all, one of the things, how many of you have been to the land of Israel? Yes, Dan, I know you. Wake up, Dan. Okay. Did you go to Tel Megiddo? Okay. What is famous at Megiddo dating from the time of Solomon? Did, any, did your guide explain it to you? What? Okay. That's where Solomon's stables were. That's where his stables were for all of his horses. And boy, did he have the horses. And it was probably to get the horses that he courted and married the daughter of a pharaoh to establish this diplomatic relationship. Okay, did Solomon amass silver and gold? Boy, he had it all. He did. 
He amassed silver and gold. Did he have many foreign wives? You betcha. I think the count was pretty high, maybe in the hundreds. Okay. Now, these were no doubt diplomatic marriages. I mean, let's face it, that's what kings did in the ancient Near East. You want to cement an alliance with another small kingship that you wanted to support your reign? What did you do? You took one of their daughters and married them. Okay. And now we're, we're kin, and as kin we can support each other. This is cool. And, but the thing is, he wanted them to be comfortable in their new home in Jerusalem. So what did he import along with the wives? He imported their gods. He established cult centers in Jerusalem, the place where God had chosen to place his name, all of these foreign sanctuaries. But what Solomon did that I think in some ways was the worst thing he could have done is he tried to undermine the tribal system. He tried to undermine the tribal system. What did he do? He set up 12 administrative districts different in boundary from tribal boundaries and set overseers over these districts for two purposes, taxation and forced labor. Taxation and forced labor. The worst case scenario of what Samuel warned the people would take place. I'm going to take your money and I'm going to take your people. Okay, and what's more, I'm going to do it in a way that undermines the whole tribal system. This is undoubtedly one of the things that led to the revolt under Jeroboam, son of Nevat, against Solomon's son, Rehoboam, where Jeroboam issued that famous cry, To your tents, O Israel. It was the cry of tribalism. It was the cry of tribalism because Solomon sought to interfere with it. He did not pay sufficient attention to the separateness forces that were at work. Okay. The division of the kingdom which took place after the death of Solomon was the beginning of the end of Israelite monarchy. And if you read the rest of the book of Kings, after that, it's sort of the case of, well, it all goes downhill from there. As far as the Israelite kings thing went bad to worse, regardless of their political situation. Okay. This brings us to the rise of prophecy and the fall of the monarchy. The rise of prophecy and the fall of monarchy. In a very real sense, there was a major turning point in the years... Uh, 874 to 853, approximately. 874 to 853. Because the original evil power couple came to the throne in the northern kingdom of Israel. Anybody know who these people were, who this couple was? Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab and Jezebel. 
Ahab's father was the founder of a new dynasty in the north. Jezebel was the daughter of a Phoenician king. And when she came to live in the new capital of Samaria that Omri, Ahab's father, had built, she brought her Phoenician religion with her, which was the Canaanite cult of Baal. Baal. Okay. I, one thing I forgot to do is bring a Baal with me. Okay. I actually have a Baal and an Ashtoreth at home. Just so you, you know, and it, you might think it's this big impressive thing. A little thing. The Baal looks like a little letter opener about that big. Because it was basically like a votive offering. People would make little images of the god and offer them in the sanctuary as devotion to Baal. Okay. So in any event, this represents the first attempt at a wholesale importation of a foreign religion, of a foreign cult. And this does mark a change. Okay. It also was a reign that saw flagrant abuse of royal power. Uh, Ahab saw a vineyard that he wanted. It belonged to an Israelite by the name of Naboth, who had inherited that as part of his family inheritance going back to the original division of the land under Joshua. That was considered almost a sacred case of land tenure. Ahab wanted, wanted it. Naboth didn't want to sell. This was his family heritage. So Ahab got depressed and Jezebel says, why are you depressed? You're the king. You can do what you want. And so what she arranged to do was to have some worthless fellows denounce Naboth in public as having cursed God and had him judicially murdered. And then Ahab grundled on down to take possession of the vineyard. But there was somebody standing in his way there when he went to take possession, and we'll get to him in a moment, who said, eh, 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 eh. Okay. There was also at this time the beginning of a major threat from the north. And this threat took first the form of the kingdom of Aram, the Arameans, with their capital in Damascus. The Aramean Syrians became a major threat from the north. But one of the reasons why the Arameans were beginning to be a threat to the northern kingdom of Israel especially was that there was a rising power behind them, the empire of Assyria. Assyria. You begin to have the rise of major, powerful, militaristic kingdoms from Mesopotamia. And this gets to be a real existential threat to the security of the Israelite kingdoms, especially in their divided state. So what was God's answer to this threefold situation? It was probably the greatest figure in many ways in the book of Kings, 
the prophet Elijah. The prophet Elijah. Okay? And so the prophetic movement as a movement really begins to be born at this time. So the origin of the prophetic movement comes with Elijah, his disciple Elisha, and their community and disciples, the Bnei Hanavi'im, the sons of the prophets. The Bnei Hanavi'im. Take a look, and here again, I need to read this, because it's a rather long passage. We're looking, really, at 1 Kings 19, 1 through 18. I'm not going to read the whole passage. Okay. I just need to find it in my Kindle. Okay, found it. Okay. Elijah had one of his great signal successes when there had been a drought. And Elijah was basically wanted to take on the single most important institution of Queen Jezebel in the entire land, which was the priests of Baal. And so he arranged a showdown on Mount Carmel, fabulous scene, where all the priests of Baal are there in all of their numbers, and they're there with all of their stuff that they're going to do, and Elijah says, I'm here alone for Hashem. So let's have a contest. Let's build ourselves an altar each and let the priests of Baal call on Baal to come down and consume the sacrifice with fire. Don't put fire to your sacrifice. So they did and they went through their ecstatic religious practices, singing, dancing, throwing themselves around like whirling dervishes, gashing themselves with knives, calling out to Baal, nothing happened, nothing happened. You know, and, and, and uh, Elijah says, maybe he's asleep. Or maybe he's gone on a journey. You better call louder. So they did. Nothing happened. So then towards the time of the afternoon sacrifice, Elijah says, okay, I'm going to build the altar. And I'm not only going to put the animal and the wood on it. I'm going to say, pour water on it. Pour water on it till it's completely saturated. He dug a trench around it. Pour water on it till the trench fills up. And then he just calmly calls upon Hashem. And lo and behold, fire falls from heaven and consumes not merely the sacrifice, but the altar, the stones, the water, everything gets consumed by this divine fire. And all the people shout, Adonai hu Elohim, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. And then Elijah ceases the moment and says, okay, you've seen the demonstration. Now take the priests of Baal out and kill them all, which he did, which they did. Well, Jezebel was not pleased. And she sent a little message to Elijah, may the gods do as much to me and mine if I have made you if I have not made you like one of them tomorrow. She made him an offer he couldn't refuse. So 
he went off into the wilderness in a blue funk. Okay? And so here is a crucial, crucial story. When Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had put all the prophets to the sword, Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, Thus and more may the gods do, if by this time tomorrow I have not made you like one of them. Frightened, he fled at once for his life. He came to Beersheba, which is in Judah, and left his servant there. He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and by the way, after Beersheba, there ain't much. Uh, he came to a broom bush and sat down under it and prayed that he might die. Enough, he cried. Now, O Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Well, an angel comes, wakes him up a couple of times, makes him eat food. He arose and ate and drank, and with the strength of that, from that meal, he walked 40 days and 40 nights as far as the mountain of God at Horeb. Where is he returning to? He's returning to Sinai, where the Torah was given. There he went into a cave, and there he spent the night. Then the word of the Lord came to him. He said to him, why are you here, Elijah? Elijah, what are you doing here? He replied, I am moved by zeal for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to the sword. I alone am left, and they are out to take my life. Poor me. Come out he called, and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And lo, the Lord passed by. There was a great and mighty wind, splitting mountains and shattering rocks by the power of the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a soft, murmuring sound. In other words, the sound, if you will, of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his mantle about his face and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then a voice addressed him. Same question. Why are you here, Elijah? And then he comes out with what one colleague I once heard preach this say. He comes out with the identical lamentable litany. I am moved by zeal for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and put, up your, put your prophets to the sword. I alone am left, and they are out to take my life. Now, he gets a quick spine implantation. The Lord said to him, go back by the way you came and to the wilderness of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael as king of Aram, king of the Arameans who were threatening Israel. Also anoint Jehu the son of Nimshi as king of Israel, a threat to King Ahab, and anoint Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah to succeed you as prophet. Whoever escapes the sword of Hazael shall be slain by Jehu, and whoever escapes the sword of Jehu shall be slain by Elisha. Uh, yet I leave in Israel only 7,000 every knee that has not knelt to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. In other words, you're not alone. You're not alone. And there are things that you need to do. First of all, what is going on here? It's as if Elijah is getting a renewal of his call, and it's taking 
place at Horeb. Okay, so we're talking about renewing the religion of Israel at its point of origin. Two, we see the beginning of a movement. You're not alone. Appoint a successor to you, and there are people out there who will form the core of a movement, a prophetic movement. But also we see political engagement. He's to anoint a foreign king to threaten Israel from the north and an Israelite to overthrow the Omrid dynasty. Wow. Okay. So what we have here is a re-Pristinization of the religion of Israel and the creation of a religious community, the Bnei HaNavi'im. Uh, they're interesting. They're a group of people. They withdrew from the cities. They were out in the wilderness, sort of as if they were reenacting the exodus and the wilderness wandering. They lived in community. It's almost monastic. They had a distinctive robe. They may have had a tonsure. They may have shaved their heads from ear to ear, and the whole front portion of their heads was bald. Um, and they may have had a tattoo over the third eye. I mean, they were, these were weird people. Okay, but their basic purpose was to go out into the wilderness and draw Israel after them to renew the religion of Israel. This bore fruit in the 8th century prophets Amos, Hosea especially, Isaiah, and Micah. Okay, Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, and Micah. Okay, I'm, I'm not done yet, and I want to get two more points out, okay? So, we see two things here. The prophetic response to the crisis of Israel is to repristinize the religion of Israel by taking it back to its wilderness roots. And, we see the first case of where the prophetic understanding comes, that God is using a foreign pagan power as an instrument to chastise Israel. Which means that we're also beginning to take a broader view of history, that God is not only the local king of a local confederation of tribes, but the God of the whole world. The God of the whole world. The finale came in the north in about 722, 721, when the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians, and in 587-586, the kingdom of Judah fell, and the temple of Solomon was destroyed. I can't believe I did this. Yes. Okay. That's not a complete timeline. It's a brief timeline. Okay, but let me tell you, Elijah is a critical figure because you really see the whole prophetic movement, what bore fruit in Hosea, Isaiah, Amos, and Micah in the 8th century grew out of the work of Elijah, Elisha, and the Bnei Hanavim. Okay? Yes? Well, let's put it this way. 
There are civilizations that go back 3,000 years, 5,000 years. Boy, do they have complicated histories. You think Israelite history is complicated and dynamic. Try Chinese history, try Indian history. Oh my goodness, I'll tell you, you really want to see intrigue? Read the Mahabharata, the epic poem of India. It's unbelievable. It's just literally almost everything that any person from India thought was important to get into their national epic is included in that, including all the mythology from the beginning. So yeah, it gets very complicated in other cultures. What's different here, and this is something that's, and, and I'll close on this note, this is absolutely, there has to be the end of it. As Yehezkel Kaufman points out in his book, The Religion of Israel from its beginnings to the Babylonian exile, if you really want to look for who is the active party throughout Israelite history as you find it in the Hebrew Scriptures, it is God. And it is a God who is non-mythological. Okay. This is unique. This is different. Okay. And this is what sets the Abrahamic faiths apart from other world religions. All right.